His body had shaken when he was forced to stand for hours, naked and shackled in a cold room, unable to shift his weight to an injured leg. He spoke of his humiliation at having to relieve himself in a bucket in front of other people, like an animal, and having been waterboarded until he stopped breathing and required resuscitation. This may sound like the story of a prisoner in a Siberian or North Korean work camp, but in actuality, that is the declassified transcript of one Abu Zubaydah, a Saudi Arabian citizen who has been trapped in Guantanamo Bay Detention Center since 2003 being misclassified as a member of Al-Qaeda. Zubaydah's interrogation tapes were so vile, so disgusting, they were among those destroyed by the United States government in 2005. Strangely enough, despite there being little to no evidence connecting him to Al-Qaeda and being told he was insignificant by the CIA in 2007, President George W. Bush deemed him too dangerous to release. His transcripts from when he went to testify regarding his mistreatments were revealed to the public in early 2016, with articles written all across the United States by papers like the New York Times, Time Magazine, and many others. Where is Mr. Zubaydah now? Still imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay, under indefinite detainment, without trial. Welcome to Hune Podcast. I'm Cameron, and I'm very grateful to Court Entity for sponsoring us so we can make another season to talk about prevalent issues and interesting topics regarding the Middle East and America. But today, we're going to hone in on a topic that is not only very close to my heart as someone who has experienced it head-on, but something that will likely hit home for many of our other viewers. Islamophobia. Whether it's discussed or not, it undoubtedly exists in American society, and most Middle Easterners, Muslim or not, have experienced it in some way. Islamophobia ramped up its presence in America post 9-11, but it's been around for a very, very long time. Different communities, often communities that were previously or even currently being persecuted by Muslims, developed a deep-set hatred for Islam and everyone who practices it. This discussion regarding American Islamophobia and Middle Eastern Islamophobia warrants an explanation in full about what the term Islamophobia entails in both societies. We're going to start with Middle Eastern societies. In Middle Eastern culture, while it is primarily Muslim-dominated, smaller groups like Parsis, Zoroastrians, Jews, and Christians can have an almost racist-like hatred for what they call ethnic Muslims, treating them like they're racially inferior, banning them from establishments, shunning them, prohibiting intermarriage between the cultures, and other such generally racist, angry behavior. This hatred ultimately stems from past persecution, the anger that goes along with that, and a background fear of Muslims. American Islamophobia does also stem from fear, and usually seems to be centered more around that fear than anger. American fear of Islam spiked dramatically at two different points in American history. The Iranian hostage crisis and 9-11. These two events saw Americans become the victims of radical Islam, with both major types inciting large increases in, in Islamophobia throughout the country. Post 9-11, 
the United States' government began to take drastic leaps in stripping away constitutional rights, like privacy, with the introduction of the Patriot Act, and justified it using Islamophobia. If you didn't know, the Patriot Act entitles the CIA the right to go through your belongings, your phone, your computer, and your dwellings without a warrant or even probable cause for the greater security of the American people. The Patriot Act is supposed to catch terrorists before they commit their acts of terror, but its effectiveness is often criticized for being not only ineffective, but downright insulting. It took advantage of the American people during a fearful time and currently continues to identify threats who are then subsequently imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay without trial. A headlining news article regarding a former Guantanamo Bay prisoner regarded as the most tortured man in the prison was released after 14 years without a conviction. It took 14 years to release Mohamedou Ould Slahi, sorry if I butchered that, a Mauritarian national, a foreign official, who had no place being detained and tortured in, Amer in an American prison on a quiet beach in Cuba. According to Independent Newsletter, who did an article about him upon his release in 2016, Slahi was shackled, blindfolded, made to stand for long periods, stripped naked, denied water, and subjected to sleep deprivation, loud noise, and threats of violence. All in an attempt to pry information from his mind, most of which, mind you, he didn't know. I find it more than a little strange that the public does not touch often on this blatant violation of the Eighth Amendment, which guarantees that no cruel and unusual punishment shall be used in our country. Strange how someone like Slahi could be transported out to sea, forced to drink salt water until he vomited, and then beaten in the face and ribs while immersed in ice to hide the bruising, and no case could be made against our government, legally speaking, since it happens outside of our grounds. Our government has located a precise and manipulative way to abuse its own citizens and foreign officials without punishment, and the American public chooses to focus anger on issues like the travel ban, which is menial in comparison, and criticize North Korea's treatment of its prisoners. Cases like Slahi's are common, with many families trying to submit appeals to the U.S. government to release their loved ones, the largest group affected by the crisis being Middle Easterners, mostly Muslims. The Guantanamo Bay Detention Center is a 17-year-old human rights violation, having been around only a few months longer than I've been alive. It represents, to many Muslims and Middle Easterners, a gross abuse of laws and rights, an eventual future from which no escape is visible. While many attempts at closing Guantanamo Bay have been made, none have stuck, which is horrifying. All those interned at Guantanamo Bay have never been given the right to a fair and free trial, and are interned indefinitely. It truly is haunting how the United States can intern and imprison both citizens and foreigners and simultaneously criticize other foreign nations for doing the exact same thing as long as the people in question aren't white. This blatant ignorance of the law, this blatant hypocrisy, operates through constitutional loopholes and is used on a racial minority in private, in secret. Disgusting. Prisoners in Guantanamo Bay are regarded as terrorists, associated with terrorism, without trial or proper evidence, as is typical practice for the U.S. government. The situation with associating those interned instantly with terrorism 
per the wish of the government, is not too different from the treatment of African Americans under the Nixon administration. In the documentary 13th, a quote from a former Nixon domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman, goes on to say, We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. He's referring to Vietnam. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt their communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Back during the Nixon administration, they used the war on drugs to try and attack the African-American community and anti-war activists, and the Bush administration clearly attempted to do the exact same thing with the war on terror. Islamophobia doesn't just seep into the minds of our government officials and day-to-day -day civilians, though. Many Muslims become internally Islamophobic. Islamophobia sets into the subconscious of many Muslims, with many trying to either deny their identity by changing their names or denying their culture. I myself have done both in my lifetime of only 17 years. I've been told by my parents that I cannot speak Farsi in airports or in public for fear of persecution. In fact, I wasn't told what a Muslim was until I was 10 years old, despite half my family, including my father, being Muslim. Many relatives of mine and family friends try to distance themselves by changing their names, not speaking Farsi, or disassociating from the tight-knit community. Comedians like Maz Jarbani joke about it, talking about how his friend Sharokh, accentuating the kh, of course, changed his name to Tony and pretended to be Italian. And while he may be joking, a lot of that is rooted in reality and pain, which is why it's funny to some people. The war on terror has vilified Muslims so much in the media that an American student, Haroudin Maskoumi, was kicked off a Southwest flight and searched, all because he spoke Arabic to his uncle on the phone very briefly while on a plane flight with white passengers. According to an article by Independent News, minutes after hanging up the phone, Mr. Maskoumi said he was singled out and removed from the flight by two police officers and Southwest employee Shoabib Ahmed. This should disgust those listening. Misconstrued fears, racist actions, media slander, and persecution, all because of this, this, this channeled imagery that the media wants the American public to believe. A similar situation seen in the documentary Out in the Night, where articles like the New York Post's from 2007, Attack of the Killer Lesbians, proceed to paint a horrifying, biased, story painting a negative image of the lesbian and African-American communities with articles that portray the women, like Venice Brown and Patrice Johnson, who were later shown to be acting in self-defense as seven bloodthirsty young lesbians. The media loves to portray minorities they don't like in a negative light in order to fulfill their own agendas, no matter how inaccurate their statements are, no matter how many people it hurts, no care is given. Sincerely, even if I wasn't personally affected by Islamophobia, I'd still find it disgusting. I've had so many personal experiences with Islamophobia, it's difficult for me to pick just one that is interesting for me to talk about, but I'll pick my favorite because I feel like it relates. One year, 
I went on a vacation with my family, including my mom and my stepfamily, all of whom, with the exception of me, had white last names. The TSA agent was reading our names off for the TSA pre-check line, and I was singled out. Cameron Bagarian. Uh, are you sure he's with you? My mom, of course, politely explained that yes, in fact, um, I am her son. He proceeds to ask again, uh, are you sure? Like she's all of a sudden going to respond, with, oh my god, who is this stranger? So even after the confirmation from my mom, he makes sure to make me stand in front of the TSA line and walk across the entire length of the hall with my back at my feet while a short, stubby-legged dog with a security vest labeled promptly security dog uh, trotted past me. I was expressly told not to look or make contact with the dog and keep a steady pace down the line. Uh, when I reached the end of the line, the security guard made a physical, huh, noise. I thought I was off the hook. <laughs> I was wrong. Uh, after making me go through the drug-sniffing trial three times, I was then shuttled to regular security, where even after making all precautions so that I wouldn't get stopped, taking off my belt, my watch, everything, and even though the metal detector detected nothing, I was still stopped, and I got patted down, and he brought the metal detector wand out anyway. This whole ordeal had my family waiting for a good half an hour. I could touch on other instances, like when the Mexican equivalent to the TSA was straight up going to confiscate my iPad for no reason until my white stepfather intervened, or a time when a white neighbor of mine who was walking her dog saw me carrying a large desktop computer and sprinted into her home. But I digress. Situations under the law that involve Islamophobia are becoming far more prevalent. It, it, it truly was shocking how often Muslim values are attacked when it comes to court cases specifically. In the nationally famous murder of Haman Lee, during which her ex-boyfriend Adnan Sayed was convicted of having killed her, his character was attacked constantly by what should have been considered by all accounts to be conjecture, with the prosecution stating that because Mr. Sayed and his family were Muslim, the Islamic faith's view on women would have inspired Sayed to feel little to no remorse for his actions. I feel that not only is the prosecution, and the state for that matter, assuming that Sayed's family, because they're Muslim, would teach him values very similar to the highly conservative Saudi Arabian government, which they were uh, creating allusions to, but Sayed was also born in Baltimore. Sayed was raised in Baltimore. And yet, the prosecution proceeded to treat him as though he was a terrorist from the moment he entered the courtroom. 9-11 shortly followed his conviction, and genuinely well-constructed attempts at an appeal for the case were denied without review, and it's not out of the question to find some sort of correlation between his appeals, 9-11, and the subsequent rejection. During the trial, it was heavily implied that given the chance, Syed would flee the country to go to Pakistan. Not only did not one ounce of the evidence they tried to use to assassinate his character in regards to his, his Muslim faith beliefs or any of his values regarding women hold up, but the character assassination on the part of the state was almost directly responsible for his conviction, which, frankly, is illegal.
As we've seen today, this is not unusual, but should definitely be disappointing and upsetting. Many Sikhs, a completely different group of Middle Easterners, are persecuted for wearing turbans and being profiled as Muslims. The easy thing to do in a situation like this would be to say, Oh, I am not Muslim. You don't have to worry about me. But Sikhs don't do that. Instead, they take it and they deal because they don't believe in shifting blame. They don't believe in hate, and they want to raise awareness regarding Islamophobia, going on shows like Jimmy Kimmel and Conan to talk about it. I think that, a pro that the, an approach like the Sikhs have is what the Middle Eastern community needs to unite on. Even if you aren't Muslim, don't shift attention to those who are if you're harassed by the TSA. It doesn't help you or anyone else to shift blame and continue persecution and stereotypes. More education is needed on what Islam actually stands for, rather than what nations like Saudi Arabia and Iran have done to alter their religious texts. I, myself, don't have a religious agenda, being an atheist, but Islam has been widely misinterpreted by Western media, widely altered by priests in theocratic governments like Iran or Ba'athist dictatorships like the reign of Hussein in Iraq. Like, uh, an example is that in, in, in 1990, it was determined by Middle Eastern scholars that the actual translation of the Quran passage that reads about the 72 dark-haired virgins that would wait if one fulfilled jihad actually translates to 72 crystal-clear raisins. And yet, American media continues to perpetuate this myth of virgins and violence and jihadists wanting to sexualize women. And while, while that's all fair and fine, it's a complete misconstruing of what the actual Quran passage says and what it has said and what several scholars have confirmed it says. Education is power. Knowledge is power. And we need peace. Thank you for listening today. And I hope you take some of what you heard here today into your Hune. Remember, uh, Hune Podcast has been sponsored by Corporate Entity. Please go check them out at corporateentity.com. And I hope to see you next week.